Mormons have long been known as one of those other groups in uniform to walk up to your front door and attempt to preach words of wisdom that simply come off of what sounds like 1% the New Testament from the Bible mixed with the majority sounding like star troopers or some other type of equivalent to that particular novel. Surrounded in a near amount of secrecy as the Scientologists and Freemasons, yet differentiated by the claim that the religion is Christian, those who have the actual Bible-based background from either seminary or family upbringing often enjoy the discussion why others don't adhere to any faith and are often fooled into thinking that they are simply disciple-bearers of Christ. Today we dive into the deep, strange theologies of all of the Mormon cults of the LDS, RDS, and FLDS Mormons. I'm Jonathan Nessert. This is the Cult Exclusive Podcast Show. took me legitimately forever to figure out how to just simply put a music song in the middle of audio because I'm not exactly an IT guy. But if you do a podcast show, there is a actually very good website out there called Slipstream. And no, it is not called Simpstream to, you know, get get all of those YouTubers out there uh, hilariously laughing at the thought of someone actually naming it that. It is actually called Simpstream. There's a ton of music on there that you can get for free, and there's a subscription that you can pay for. I believe it's only $10 per month, which is basically a normal dating website. You can go on there and make a password, and you can get a large amount of music that a lot of people have not figured out exists, and you can put it in your own podcast production. So now let's get to the show. Mormons, ever since they have, in fact, been Mormons, and ever since the start of their history, have continued to branch out all over the world, just as the actual Jesus mentioned would happen, following his ascension into heaven. Unlike the denominations of actual churches in the Christian and Catholic assemblies, where they're, of course, Methodist, United Methodist, Presbyterian, Wesleyan, St. Peter Lutheran and numerous others branching out into a near 45,000 actual Christian denominations, all of course with different political standings, different views on biblical subjects, and different particular theology, all claimed by the Bible in some way, shape, or form, besides what the majority of the United Methodists say most of the time, Mormons adhere to the basis of the president of that said Mormon temple and the Mormon assembly versus what any actual Christian church assumes to be biblically communicated and attributed to the Bible. Also, unlike the actual group of Christian denominations, Mormon assemblies, instead of being broken up into 45,000 different churches, which of course, if they were thrown into that number, might actually make it appear more likely that they were actually Christian, are separated into three different Mormon church denominations, if you will, that are really side-branched cults that true Mormons claim are disassociated from one another due to the theology that they believe. And in this sense, Mormons basically fight just as much as Christians tend to do. The entirety of the branches are as follows, and we will get into each one of them today in full detail. First, 
the LDS Mormons, who were the first that stand for Latter-day Saints, since they were the first out of the whole. Then comes the FLDS Church, followed by the RLDS Church. And followed by these formed groups are the next groups that branched off of the FLDS and the RLDS, which is the Community of Christ, which basically just sounds like some sort of random Baptist church that you come across randomly in the middle of Alabama, and the Church of Christ with the Elijah message, which kind of sounds in the same light and then just sort of adds on a new message on the end of it. The Church of Christ of the Temple Lot, which sounds also like some sort of Presbyterian or Baptist church with another added measure. And the Church of Christ of the Societal Order, which kind of sort of sounds like some sort of Masonic temple with the church combined. But we'll actually get to all of those four later on in a future episode just particularly for the sake of time. So let's start getting into the LDS Church denomination. So the LDS Church stands for Latter-day Saints, and the LDS is normally the church that most people come into contact with. Sometimes within decently big cities where the formation is popular already, or other times in the middle of a local subdivision where most would assume Mormons wouldn't travel to, of course before remembering that they literally travel to the worst parts of the distant world, in order to preach a gospel not related to the actual Bible. Their history begins and is most extensive during the period of the evangelical movement of the 19th century, in other words, the early 1800s. And if you remember from church history or you know church history, this is one of the most pivotal points in church historical, uh, in, the, in the church historical timeline, where the most extensive church schisms and church disagreements tended to happen as this is actually why we have nearly 48 pushing 50,000 denominations uh, church buildings today. So strangely, the people of the surrounding area of this time actually did not catch on to the ideas of Joseph Smith's Mormonism for some time. It took a number of decades. As with the instance of Joseph Smith to be surrounded in uneasiness in the middle of the evangelical movement, there was much unwanted resistance to the Mormon ideology following the apparent revelations that he received from what actual Christians know to be a demon called Moroni. This can only be a sign to not particularly put one's trust in the ideas of the Mormon faith, considering that the literal leader himself was just as confused as anybody else when all of the revelations were particularly happening. And this should be a, an approach to have better discernment on actual biblical doctrine versus a group challenging the original text of the Bible and its message. Now first and foremost, the normal wrong assertion that is pushed forward by the Mormons should be the most obvious. As they mention, for the Garden of Eden to actually be in Jacksonville, Missouri, although the biblical-based texts assures the reader that it must be in the Middle East versus the United States, considering the biblical connection to the location and considering the symbolism of the desert and trials and struggle and all those other forms of symbolic representation. The whole of the movement began around 1805, when Joseph was dealing with intense tra trauma within his family and moved up into 1807, where he would later see his revelations. Due to the hard seasonal months 
and the changes in the church, his family ultimately dealt with intense financial stress and health-related problems and issues. Before the Mormon dealings, Joseph Smith was originally part of uh, earlier youth uh, groups growing up within an actual church denomination. And it's normally, normally, you know, and it's normally a form of history that Mormons actually want to avoid because they want to be a group all off to themselves and they legitimately want to address that the Bible is not at all the final authority even though the millisecond you bring the Bible up they will actually affirm that the Bible and the Book of Mormon completely 100% go together. Now this next this next fact of the history is very, 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 very important, and Mormons actually will not bring this up either. When Joseph Smith was very young, between the ages of 12 and 14, he would go treasure hunting around the environment that he grew up in, and this is where we see the first instance of seer, uh, seer stones coming into play. Most people in America don't really know what that is, but people who have practiced the, the occult very much so do. So seer stones are basically within a sort of a Middle Eastern perspective and they're meant to show you the future and they're meant to be works of divination. And they're also put in the same line as the Urian and the Thurian and the Old Testament. And hopefully I'm not mispronouncing those correctly, I probably am. But essentially those were the production uh, the productive properties that God used to speak to them and essentially that's what the Israelites were casting lots in order to figure out and completely discern where they should go where they should ch set up their kingdom whether they should fight or whether they should stay within the area of land that they were at and this is basically an occult version of that and often people in the Mormon regime they'll argue that the Urium and Thurium are just as holy as these seer stones. That's basically one of the main arguments that they'll have towards Christians when you encounter them about it. So the reason why these are important is because Joseph Smith would actually use these seer stones in order to try and find treasures when he was at that super young age. And they'd walk around their property and they'd basically be occult archaeologists, if you will. And this is generally something that, as I said before, absolutely no Mormons will bring up. And they want absolutely no one that they're attempting to convert to know this. Because as soon as you do know it, it's very obvious where all the theology tends to come from. Now the seer stones are majorly important since actual missionaries will not mention them. If anything, these are, if these are actual missionaries sent from God they would still not be doing the appropriate practices since all forms of witchcraft of any sort were banned under the punishment of death in the Old Testament days. And of course, one of the most well-known is Saul. It's specifically the Mormon state that they have nothing to do with witchcraft and actually forbid it themselves. Yet that is literally how the Book of Mormon was constructed. And if you remove the instance of the a Moroni encounter and the actual history of deviation from the evangelical movement, then it's just simply a couple of people messing with occult ideologies and messing with some sort of occult symbol. 
so it should be 100% completely obvious. The occult connections are far too obvious, and this is why the Mormons do not want to mention this history, while it is also found in actual historical written biographies of local libraries today when it comes to Middle Eastern occultism. Occult objects like the Ouija board as well deal with connections to the spiritual realm, while the seer stones are meant to interpret writings and, of course, later on they were the founders of the Mormon community. And they are also meant to be a use for divination and communicate the future so as to tell someone using the seer stones exactly what they're supposed to do and it actually is a basically a connection methodology for someone to call on a demon, call on a spirit, or call on something else in the opposite realm of the mortal world. Which of course is overall what makes it an occult uh, object. Now the actual history that the Mormons don't want a random suburban resident to know that you know just wants to get his Saturday pizza living at home in a single bedroom apartment complex is the true origin of the seer stones so we are gonna jump into that very very quickly and of course I'm gonna be very careful how I explain this because I obviously don't want people out there to just get certain ideas and jump into occult practices that's not what this show is about although there are some shows out there unfortunately like that but from the publication entitled Ancient Records of Assyria and Babylon by PhD Daniel David Luckerbill it is heavily related to the Black Stone of Babylon and is said to be a meteorite rock and has heavily detailed in inscriptions on it based in Babylonian ancient languages or one Babylonian ancient language. In actuality, the stone that the Mormons quietly attribute to their religion then, therefore, is actually fully Babylonian and Assyrian in origin, instead of some sort of Mormon ancient history. Of course, this also puts an issue with all of their theology, considering that the Israelites that were actually in the Old Testament were 100% completely against Babylon and Assyria. They were 100% not business partners, obviously, and this puts all of their theology in an extreme problematic situation. There's another practice that is fully Babylonian that can absolutely be directed more so towards how the Book of Mormon was interpreted, all the way down to exactly how Joseph Smith ended up interpreting the Book of Mormon. In the ancient years of Babylonian kings, before the time of Saul's decree where spiritists and sorcerers were banished from the land, there was a distinct practice known as the Talmudic practices in Babylon. And again, I'll be short and quick with this considering it's an actual real thing. So a sorcerer or spiritist would pour certain mixtures into incantation bowls that had certain words of language all over the bowl and there's actually uh, I believe there's multiple archaeological finds of this in several museums perhaps there's one perhaps there's three I'm pretty sure there's several of them but following the pouring of the chemicals and the incantation and a second stated incantation they would look into the bowl for either a revelation or a spirit to give guidance or show up or at least for an answer to a question given by someone who approached and of course paid for an answer. 
Following this, there were other practices in order to prevent what was called upon from overtaking the spiritist or the sorcerer, but in short detail, the ideal concept was to trap the demon or spirit into the bowl of which it was called up in order to prevent it from doing anything else. This is actually the closest attribute that was also not completely explained, but is it is the closest attribute to the practice done in the biblical account of the witch of Endor in the book of 2 Kings chapter 15. So what does this all have to do specifically with how the Book of Mormon was written exactly? Well, historically, the Book of Mormon was actually composed after Joseph Smith received his revelation, obviously from the angel, uh, angel Mor Moroni, Moroni, who claimed to be a messenger from God during the time period of the Nephites and Lemites, according to the Mormon vision of history, which of course can just simply be disproven by asking a simple question as to what was going on during that specific period in history in real time. Apparently, Moroni fought against the Lemites during the final battle and was unfortunately injured to the point of death. Although to the Mormons he survived for 37 more years and basically Joseph Smith just took that from the era of the kings of the Old Testament and the judges that lived for up to hundreds of years the whole entire time. So that's basically where that comes from. He just probably just selected a number there, which is not at all surprising, you know, from, from the Mormon background. Moore and I claimed that with all this history, he was revealed, uh, he, he revealed it to Joseph Smith, which would later on be the Book of Mormon itself. He commanded Smith to find the golden plates that of course interpreted this whole history that they were written down and he was to translate these plates by using the seer stone and a hat. So this is basically an Americanized, a more Americanized standard version of occult practices from Babylon. And essentially, Moore and I originally wrote the golden plates. He, he composed the golden plates from the past history. He randomly buried them in the ground for some reason and then he told uh, Joseph Smith where to find them and he selectively also told Joseph Smith not to tell anyone where they were and he told Joseph Smith also not to tell anybody about them which of course is sort of strange considering you're wanting your religion to actually spread but anyway now I have to mention this before in the past in recent shows but it's very important to reinstate often the most powerful false claims will be in the most unrealistic depictions in order to confuse those who are desperate for a revelation. That they can have as much power and control over as possible or something that's the most easiest to manipulate, since the text itself of these cults are manipulated already. And this of course makes it all the more dangerous for people who are already being attacked by sinful desires and for people who are already completely utterly confused due to what's going on in their life. Now, theologically, some actual LDS church members today claim that Joseph Smith was actually part of a Baptist denomination before his self-proclaimed experience with Moroni. The majority, who are not acclaimed to be following the Mormon religion, however, specify that he was actually part of a Presbyterian denomination, and this is actually what you will find in the biographies of Joseph, which makes a lot more sense considering that Presbyterians formed in the middle of the evangelical movement, which mass which 
appears to match the history when Joseph Smith seemingly accounted, uh, encountered his experience and the fact that Presbyterian formed you know, after the continual splits from further Baptist denominations in the 19th century. But of course, Mormons don't really enjoy following history all that much. Regardless, there is an eye-opening reason why Joseph Smith was not more aware of the demonic encounter he experienced and why the entire occurrence was a lie to contradict the movement of actual Christianity. First off, and I've given many takes on why cessationism recently is the worst theology to ever attempt to attribute to the Bible, but there of course is yet another reason. It literally causes the movements, or it literally caused the movements of Mormonism to happen in the first place. The Baptist denomination heavily believes in the majority that the spiritual gifts ceased with the deaths of the apostles, which again, reading the miracles of the Old and New Testament should be the biggest red flag that could ever fly. But at the same time, the Presbyterian denomination also makes the same mistake, and also mostly applies the cessationist ideas within their biblical presuppositions. Since there were churches on both sides of the argumentation during the early 19th century, the only realistic thought that Joseph Smith could most likely get behind would be to lose faith in the tyranny in the entirety of the normal churches altogether. And of course, the only realistic thought that happened was for Joseph Smith to be completely susceptible to everything that would later on take place. And of course, if I'm being honest, you can blame the Baptist and Presbyterian denominations for that, but historically, they have cessationist viewpoints nonetheless. Now, Mormonism is intriguingly structured in a way where almost every single actual Christ-centered philosophy makes the majority of the philosophical mindset here. So they actually want to be as close with Christianity and they want to be called Christianity at the same time. And of course, this confuses everyone who hasn't grown up particularly in the church because it's very easy to make a group look like it's Christian just by putting Christ at the end of it, as with the other break-off sects of Mormonism that literally have Church of Christ, you know, as their entitlement, which basically today would literally simply be a lawsuit. But in the most simplistic characterization, Mormon belief is to uttermost choose God over the characteristics of evil, which obviously, given the source of how the Book of Mormon was interpreted, rather contradictory in nature. As with other groups constructed within the period of the past two centuries, cultism is normally hidden by the wanted display of choosing good over evil. As most people would mention, they would choose, given the opportunity to allow others to present in a witness with their ethical agenda, and most people would honestly say they're good people to begin with. So this is basically a straightforward go-to for the Mormon cult as well as other cults in general. In Mormonism as well, the philosoph uh, philosophy of faith is defined also by the need to evangelize as a necessity for gaining one of many heavens that to Mormonism exist versus just one specific heaven that exists in Christianity and Catholicism. And of course, they exist thousands of miles away from each other, and even millions of miles away from each other, why each heaven is being preserved for the most devout Mormon followers. At times in the Mormon's history, it was even specified that the only way to gain each heavenly realm was to be devoted to evangelism, 
and devote themselves to the practices of the belief system, as is Christianity, when you have to be a devout follower of Jesus in order to enter the heavenly realms. However, when it comes to the Mormon following, the only way to actually enter into the highest heaven is to gain approval from the president himself or your particular president and your particular Mormon assembly, and you have to have a letter of recommendation written so that you can actually go to the secret cult rituals in the Mormon temple, and that uttermost secures your ability to gain the highest heaven or at least one of the highest heavens. Now, the LDS Church is the primary form of Mormonism in which the pseudo-history compared to actual Christianity is adapted. According to the history of the LDS Church of the Mormons, known by this denomination, which in a sense denominations would primarily possibly be the wrong name since Mormonism technically is a cult and it's not Christian, it's far more appropriate to call any Mormon group a cult formation versus technically a denomination. However, since it's widely constructed in this way, I figure I might as well refer to them denominationally anyway. Now, as for the branded history, due to the fact that there's no way that these historical, historical accounts documented by the Mormon, uh, Mormon faith actually happened, both archaeographically and due to historical records of other tribes and nations and surrounding people groups in the rest of the world, Mormonism technically requires far more faith than the faith of Christianity and Catholics, as well as other faiths. Since the history has never been discovered to be true, besides you know, what the cult formation says and the given statement that more, most Mormons will apply when they're trying to evangelize to you, that is just feel it in your heart and it's true already. That's basically what a lot of them will say. First off, Mormonism, by the account of the books of 1st Nephi, 2nd Nephi, Book of Jacob, Book of Enos, Book of Jerome, Book of Omani, the Book of the Words of Moroni, Book of Moshe, Book of Alma, Book of Helama, 3rd Nephi, 4th Nephi, Book of Mormon, and the Book of Ether, as well as lastly the Book of Moroni, all of these state all of the Mormon history and all of the Mormon concepts, and they're basically a misconstrued version of the Old Testament mixed with history that never happened. Now, at first glance, just by the names of some of the in-between books of the Mormon accounts, a Christian, Catholic, or even someone who simply enjoys the study of religious history but is somewhat unaffiliated with a particular world religious concept might assume that the in-between books are meant to be from Mormon prophets that are actually meant to be copies of other actual prophets, in the actual Biblical Old and New Testament, or actually Biblical Old Testament, in order to make it seem as though it was more of a Biblical structure involved. And of course, this notion would be completely correct. Although the books of the Mormon religion, or throughout the books of the Mormon religion, there are accounts of characters from whom the uh, books appear to be constructed after actual characters of the Biblical Old Testament, some of them copy the judges, some of them copy kings in Israel, and some of them copy main people such as Jacob, but they just switch around most of the characters, making them do different things, end up in different places, or have different jobs and different characteristics. Another example of one of the many reoccur uh, reoccurring copies 
of the gospel according to the actual biblical structure people who are actual Christians and Catholics are familiar with. One of the other books of the Books of Mormon is the Book of Alma, where the character of Alma is the son of the high priest, Alma, first and the chief judge over the people of Nephi, who we see in the entire Books of Mormon ends up attempting to mirror the people of Israel, but simply somehow a fake Israel, and who are somehow not Middle Eastern, but native ancient Mesoamericans, however that makes sense, although there's absolutely no way to find out any truth behind this historical doc uh, documentation. But of course, we already went over that beforehand and how it was interpreted from Assyrian practices related to witchcraft. Now, just to enforce what happens at the very ends of the Books of Mormon, considering that the Books of Mormon are actually extremely long and far too long to read in entirety on this podcast episode, I will go through... Uh, we will go through a number, we'll go through five short synopsises here that detail exactly what happened throughout the whole of the Book of Mormon. So first, there's the prophet Lehi, or Lehi, Lehi is his name. First, there's the prophet Lehi, who technically is a mirroring version of the prophet Abraham for the Mormon community. Similar to the instance of Abraham, Lehi is told to take his family away from Jerusalem because through a divine dream, the city will be destroyed, which of course also doesn't make any sense today considering Jerusalem isn't destroyed and was actually the holy city of the Jews, but again, Mormons. So, uh, Secondly, Leman and Lemuel, the oldest sons of Lehi, which kind of sounds like Samuel and uh, another biblical character um, it's kind of escaping me but Leman and Lemuel the oldest sons of Lehi which are meant to mirror Jacob and potentially Esau without saying so go against their father's wishes and they don't believe their father's dream but the son named Nephi has faith in what his father has said up to this point and as a result Nephi is chosen to lead God's people instead of Leman and Lemuel which sounds like when a person was chosen as king to lead over Israel and also the concept that Abraham will be blessed as a strong nation is applied here but obviously they're all different biblical characters that kind of just show up out in the middle of nowhere so completely ignoring the book of Genesis but still stating that the Bible is in line with the book of Mormon somehow all of the brothers have wives and they spread out across the community and since the two other brothers hate Nephi so much, they end up wanting to kill him, similar to the book of Genesis involving Joseph in the actual scripture. And thus, after this split, the two separate, uh, the two separate uh, groups form from the line of Lehi, and they become the Nephites and the Lamanites. And in the Book of Mormon, uh, there's then, of course, telling of sermons and supernatural experiences that are said to have happened as a result of this brotherly family, uh, brotherly family spiritual split. So in a sense, this is basically sort of similar to when the apostles did a bunch of miracles and it just kind of throws all of those particular biblical accounts backwards into the Old Testament and it uses different character names. Now this is where it gets difficult to understand. The Mormons enjoy 
merging the Bible with other books of Mormon, and thus it becomes more and more confusing. And this is where the other books, uh, such as the Book of Alma, which we talked about originally, uh, come into play. And they basically throw all these books together with the Old Testament. So this is essentially as if they're using their own Mormon version <coughs> of Judges while acting like this isn't happening. It's basically an in-between point when the two people groups off of the line of uh, the mentioned family genealogy happen and it's sort of an in-between portion in the Book of Mormon history. So next, after the New Testament, the Books of Mormon pick up again with a new account of the resurrection of Jesus where Jesus returns in a completely new way that's not as direct as the actual New Testament. When Jesus is discussing everything after he resurrects, he focuses on the concepts of baptism, which Mormons highly focus on, and forgiveness, which is another biblical concept that the Mormons highly focus on, instead of the rest of the whole combination with 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and all of the other books of the New Testament actually being in order and written and observed in the order and the way that they should actually be if someone is actually Christian, you know, ignoring all of the Mormon history because it doesn't belong. Due to the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed somehow, which of course didn't happen, Jesus is said to rebuke Jerusalem and the resurrected Jesus of the Mormons, uh, the, resurre the resurrected uh, Jesus of the Mormon community, causes everyone to live in peace for a period of a couple hundred years of time. Later on, the evil people of the Nephites, by the word of the Books of Mormon, eventually cause them to lose faith, which in turn causes the Lamanites to destroy the Nephites completely. And this whole attribute of losing faith, particularly, is also a concept that is brought off of the factor that the Israelites would lose faith over and over in the middle of the desert under Moses. And Moses is actually thrown in there in the past uh, parts of the Book of Mormon. And he's basically given uh, the same job to do, give them the law and all of that. But it's just the Mormon law instead of the actual Israelite law. And in this sense, those people, the Nephites, are completely wiped out from the earth. Except for some people that potentially apparently survived, which are the Indians today, that are left. And they always get upset about this since the early years of America, who, which of course was overwhelmed by the European explorers that would later on uh, reshape it into what is now the United States. This is another area where the Book of Mormon just simply doesn't make sense because none of those histories collaborate with each other. But of course, Mormons assume that they have such strong faith that what they simply say in the Book of Mormon is what simply happened historically. So if you are someone on the right and you do not enjoy leftist media and you do not enjoy leftist politics, but you instead enjoy a certain type of beer and a certain type of night, and you enjoy drinking beer with your friends but you just don't want to deal with Bud Light anymore, there's actually a fantastic company out there called Ultra Right Beer Company. Now, Ultra Right Beer Company basically was formed by a father who decided to go directly 
against the whole Bud Light scenario, and he formulated his own company. You can go online to his website at ultrarightbeerdad.com in order to start to declare war on the beer companies that would promote annoying leftist media and annoying leftist uh, politics that just want to destroy your family. Go online right now to ultrarightbeerdad.com in order to secure your order of ultra-right beer. Also, make sure to rate the show, and there might be a possibility that an ancient uh, warrior from the royal family of Lower Egypt might gift you with a golden chariot, or you might just be informed every time I release a new episode, or perhaps both of those things might happen. But make sure you rate the show. It would really help me out, and it would help me to continue to make podcast episodes to everyone's liking so that they can learn about religious history. Now we're going to get into some of the strange theology now. And we're going to get into some of the extremely strange parts within the Mormon cult and discern some of the theological differences to Christianity as well as some multiple practices that actually don't, that actually shouldn't really exist if they're actually Christian and tend to confuse people as soon as they realize what they are. Theologically, again, just based off the name Mormon and just based off of actual Christian denominations, you might as well assume that Christians are not at all the same. However, we will still jump into the major details that go against the church of a more centered church in America and try to make uh, everyone today figure out the weird of Mormonism and exactly why it's opposite. So firstly, Mormons have a centered theology that there's an action known as baptism for the dead, which is actually more of an occult practice and it's an occult redirection of baptism in Christianity. This is involved in prayerfully and symbolically and literally baptizing someone who is not Mormon, who has died against their wishes, and of whom would not have been baptized if the person was still alive. In a sense, this is sort of similar to a Catholic uh, prayer of you know, praying on behalf of someone else, but it's essentially baptism instead of simply prayer. And what happens is they take someone who is Mormon and they basically call them the name of the dead person and they baptize them essentially over and over and over again. This can be borderline uh, close to demonic evil since demonic evil always works in secret and seeks to copy as many of the biblical basis of the faith, yet having them be for dark and evil purposes of course manifesting as something that particularly claims to be good. Now this really does not have any power after someone dies, and of course they're Christian or Catholic, but it's essentially a Mormon occult attribute to occultism that attempts to steer someone away from the faith of Christianity or Catholicism, or just attempts to secure someone's soul, they think, for Mormonism, but it is mostly an essential practice to people practicing dark evil to try and get someone off of the line of actual you know, heavenly dwelling as soon as they die. It's essentially one of those same practices related to the occult and witchcraft where you do something in secret in order to completely misstep someone's ministry so that they don't know what's going on. 
depending on what spiritual gifts they have. Now specifically when it comes to the afterlife, in which the Mormons do believe, but at the same time it's not close to the same as Christianity, as we mentioned very, very quickly beforehand, Mormons state that there are actually three heavens, and similar to a certain handshake that a Mormon needs to know in order to get into the main Mormon temples, this is basically the same type of practice that Masonic rituals require. You're supposed to do a certain handshake in order to get into a Masonic temple, and you're supposed to do a certain handshake in order to get into heaven when it comes to Mormonism. And there's actually historical accounted for documentation that Joseph Smith particularly might have been well on his way to receiving his first uh, Mason Rite within, I believe it was the Scottish Rite. So if that history is true, of course, it 100% makes it completely obvious where all these handshake ideas are coming from. And if he did that before receiving his revelation, then it makes even more sense why all these things are in combination when it comes to the Mormon following. So Mormons differentiated from the true Christian followers of Christ also believe that marriage will not cease after death. In this case, when you die, if it's after or before your partner, you'll actually still be married in heaven. And the only difference is according to the theology that's set by the LDS Church which has never been overturned since it stabilizes the theology of multiple gods and multiple world planets, it simply depends on which planet you will rule as a god with your partner, depending on how high up in the ranks you are in Mormonism. One way or another, this type of theology is at least decently positive since it does in fact stress the importance of marriage and not getting divorced between two individuals in holy matrimony, but on the other side of the theological argument, the notion of becoming a god similar to other gods and other religions is anything but Christ-centered, and it's very much so in fact the first lie that the serpent told Eve. Also here we note some other theological concepts that most would not imagine actually exist and are taken seriously, and quite truly this notion is where those trying to decide whether or not to join a cult should see the error in doing so. And this is honestly the most hilarious, as most assuredly made fun of as soon as people realize it's a thing. But the Mormon belief system has holy undergarments or holy underwear. Basically, when they go to temple worship and they go to a Mormon church, they have to wear it underneath their clothes. So it's essentially the same concept of going on a ski trip and wearing that spandex uniform underneath everything else so you're extremely warm, only having the whole entirety of what you're wearing being undergarments and underwear, which sort of seems rather ridiculous. But essentially, this is one, this is one of the main ways that you'll actually get at least into the first heaven. You have to actually be wearing these undergarments when you die, and it's actually been stressed and thought that in rituals after someone's dead, and we have not figured this out yet, we've not been able to get someone back in the Mormon temples to see if this is actually the case, but most, uh, most historians and theologians assume, and there are also some people on the conspiracy level of things assume this, since people just kind of throw conspiracies out there no matter what they are, but a lot of people assume that in their rituals for the dead, they'll have an open casket 
and the open casket of the dead person will, of course, be wearing the undergarments, which is really just kind of strange. But that is meant to get them at least into the first heaven. And this is sort of similar to doing all of those rituals in ancient Egypt so that the pharaoh can be invited into the heavenly realm and that form of the Egyptian religiosity. So, of course, those are both different religions, but essentially you have to do a particular thing in Mormonism and it just happens to be wearing underwear all over your body which is pretty strange but the epistemology is a bit on the extremely different side as well when it comes to end times and the ends of someone's mortal life on earth the spiritual realm is set up of course not at all the same as the actual bible but to touch on this concept there's another theology that has to be described first when it is that, uh, when when it comes to people being immortal and what happens after death, so there's this idea of pre-mortal existence. This view, from the Mormon perspective, applies that before someone is born, they already existed to begin with in spirit form. So this is where their version of spirits comes in, and it can also be connected to how Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon because certain spirits were basically telling them what to do, and then Moroni appeared. In this sense, people are basically a pre-born ghost, if you will, sort of similar to the idea of the childhood ghost Casper, all the way back, I believe it was probably in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, only, the, only in a differentiated, strange way where you're living on another planet, as a Casper ghost before you're born into this normal universe. Using this view, Mormons suspect that for whatever reason, every everyone, which really is everyone, forgot their pre-mortal existence when they were a Casper ghost, and they were sent to Earth in the form of a born infant, and they grew up to be a normal human being up to now. Following this, during their earthly time, during their normal life, they must follow in the ways of Mormonism in order to succeed in what's to come later in their theological process and attain heaven. And a large amount of what has been detailed in uh, secret accounts of the temple rituals, which we'll get to one of those at the very end of this episode, but a large amount of the rituals are directed towards a copy of Freemasonry mixed together with what they believe is ritualisms that will allow you to remember your past life as a Casper ghost. But we will get to that at the very end of this episode. So next, Mormons are diligently taught that they will die and after death they will be sent to the spirit world. So this is sort of the idea of um, other horror movies such as Insidious except it's not exactly a hellscape necessarily. It's just another spiritual realm that you go to directly after you die. But it's also some sort of view of Gnosticism, only a view of Gnosticism where you can't exactly control everything with secret knowledge unless you do this secret temple practices. After this, if they were good enough Mormons when they were on the earth, they will ultimately be resurrected, and after the final judgment, if they pass the test, which of course has to do particularly with the secret temple rituals as well, they will be classified as a good enough Mormon 
and they will get as many stages of heaven as they particularly want. It is here where they must know their password, handshake, and everything else with the temple rituals in order to get into these particularly different heavens. They will in turn, if they made it high enough into the ranks, and if they are given the ability while on earth, when they go to the apple actual temples, which again are acquired by a letter, letter of recommendation by the main president or their president of their Mormon assembly, they will get into the highest levels of heaven and they will actually be gifted with over 70 wives and they will actually as well be married to their first wife that they had on earth, which is a big controversy. But that in a sense is the heaven concept of the Mormon religion. Now, yet another theological difference between Christians and the Mormons, and this is one of the first aspects known about their theology, is the fact that coffee and tea are extremely banned when it comes to their health intake. They view it as extremely unhealthy. And this doctrine comes from the portions of the Doctrine and the Covenants 89, 8-9, which is essentially a written document in the Mormon Church, which describe tobacco and other smokes and other hot drinks, mostly those containing caffeine, to be banned from the Mormon religion. This has been a recent and ever-going debate within the Mormon campuses as caffeine drinks have been removed and applied and banned and reinstated on, say, BYU campus on and off for decades. Really, this is one of the many potential healthy attributes of Mormonism as well, since partaking in an excessive amount of these materials is obviously negative to health already. But of course, if you take just a little bit of caffeine, of course, obviously not drinking, you know, 10 monsters in one day, but if you t take a little bit of caffeine, it is decently healthy and it can actually sustain you to a decently healthy effect. But of course, Mormons want to throw off caffeine completely due to the fact that their different separate testamental documents say that, you know, if you listen to the current president and you listen to everyone within the Mormon community faith, then that's actually the only way to achieve heaven and the only way to be a good, desirable Mormon. Now we'll go through a couple of reasons how this cult looks like Christianity. Now there are many avenues in which this cult enjoys copying the appearance of an actual Christian denomination. Of course, one is the instance of the Mormon faculty to be viewed similar to an actual church building when it comes to, say, a normal Baptist denomination, just not with people wearing mostly black and blue apparel with the guys normally wearing matching ties. Although a lot of people in the Baptist denomination still wear ties and they still wear suits, so that's technically a way that they look exactly similar. At times, there's also a greeter at the front of the door, similar to how a Catholic or a Protestant church will function, which can easily confuse or mislead countless people who are you know, overall new to their faith in Christianity. Now, the Mormons, all the way back in the period of the early 1800s again, also made sure that the cult inside and out looks equal and real to Christ's followers, even down to their, how their Bible appears. The Book of Mormon was copied on a hardcover in the middle of the 1800s, it was 1819, I believe, in the way that it's meant to resemble one of the small actual Bibles that was used to evangelize during that time. And later on, they would actually, as the 
Mormon followers split into LDS and FLDS. The King James Version was used primarily in the FLDS denomination and essentially tried to copy the King James look of the Bible so that people would be even more so confused as to what was actually a Christian book. And this Bible also applies words such as thou and ye all the time, depending on the specific translation. This, of course, is because of the time period in which the Book of Mormon took place, as well as the evangelical movement and the extreme love for the King James Bible, particularly throughout all those coming centuries. Now, one of the most obvious ways in which this cult does not appear to be within the same complete structure as actual Christianity is essentially based on the reality that I mentioned before that Mormonist um, theology ever more so changes depending on the current president of the church, which is not something that happens with an actual Christian denomination. This is somewhat troubling, of course, coming from the viewpoint of actual Christianity, where millions of pastors will apply the gifts are present, while millions of pastors will argue the opposing view, and millions of pastors will have problems with alcohol, while millions of others do not, as well as free will arguments and other theological displacement that divides the Christian churches up to this day. And of course, this makes real Christians even more so assume that Mormonism is Christian. Of course, this is a problem that just simply can't really be dealt with in a way where everyone magically agrees with each other, considering that's obviously not how people work and function. But in the end times, in the end times, people will understand what is completely Christian, what is completely truth, and what is completely Christianity. So let's get into some of the practices and main traditions. One main tradition of the Mormon faith, as well as it's the attitude of baptism, because this is actually required in order for the whole of an after-death theology to actually take place. And this is why the application of baptism for the dead is also so important for Mormonism, even though it's not at all Christianity, and we mentioned that before. But nearly all Mormons, and I was actually watching a channel on YouTube about this when I was getting all this information, and this lady basically took the words of Paul and Corinthians completely in the wrong light, and this is generally what Mormons will tend to do. They'll they'll throw Paul's words and they'll say that 100% you need baptism for the dead, but of course the whole point that Paul is implying in Corinthians is that you are not to do baptism for the dead, but you are simply to believe in Jesus. Now one attribute that is central to the Mormon church is the attribute that only men are the individuals who are traditionally fit to do any form of uh, of ritualistic practice in their Mormon priesthood. Yet this viewpoint doesn't necessarily go very far considering a woman can be baptized at the simple request to do so through her parents or guardians. A female can be baptized and thus of course go in line with the heavenly Mormonistic ideologies, but they are not at all allowed to be in the priesthood. And this is one difference between the RLDS, FLDS, and LDS church with the FLDS breaking off and basically throwing women into somewhat of a leadership position 
or the RLDS says that women 100% should be in the priesthood, which is basically a tried copy of the Catholic Church. But of course, the Catholic Church has never allowed women to be priests at all to begin with. Now, in the light of the issue of divorce, and it's what we were talking about before too, this is where people can confuse it for, say, Catholic churches around the world as well. The Mormon view is that divorce is particularly a necessary evil, similar to the concept of good and evil where one cannot exist without the other. As in the Christian denominations, there's actually Christians, you know, also do do this all the time. Christians get divorced at high rates, and Mormons sometimes get divorced too. There has to be written paperwork, you know, detailing the divorce. It's basically the same whole thing with law and divorce filings that have to be looked over by an individual who has their proper law credentials. But one of the ways to discern whether or not this is a Catholic, Protestant, or Mormon issue when it comes to the divorce of law is what will happen afterwards. Because Mormons actually believe that after you get divorced, it is an extreme casualty because you will still be with the person after you die. Whereas Catholics and other Christians obviously state that marriage will not occur in heaven. This is another huge difference when it comes to marital processes between religions. Now, as it has been for the long run in the traditions of the Mormon community, when it comes to evangelism, there is a two-year period in which Mormon disciples go on mission, and this of course is also one of the many aspects that is made fun of in the play The Book of Mormon, co-written by the creators of South Park, which is a very hilarious play. In this production throughout the scenes, the multiple characters who are on mission together, there is a song entitled Turn It Off, where each character sings about their pasts, and it's actually very vulgar obviously because of South Park, but they essentially talk about their pasts and they ignore them and they simply state that one can simply turn it off and throw all of their past issues out the window and the joke is that they don't really have any theology backing how they exactly do that besides secret ritualistic practices that they won't reveal to anyone. Now thinking back on my time when I went to upstate New York for ministry as well as Petoskey uh, for ministry before that there are periods in every actual Christian's life where, and of course especially where you're younger, where you feel you simply want to go home and you don't want to have anything to do with the community you walked into because you're just completely drained and you're completely uncomfortable. However, this is most likely the historical situation that most people, uh, this, this is most likely the situation where people who are raised Mormon tend to reject their faith. Uh, it is the period where they are on uh, missions. And particularly, this is an issue in actual Christianity as well, where people start to go on a mission. They Maybe they go to uh, missions in the middle of Mexico. Maybe they go to missions somewhere else outside of the United States or within the United States, and they just get completely drained. They want to go home, and they think evangelism isn't for them. And as a result, Christianity isn't for them. Well, in Mormonism, this is even more so a case that would happen and would honestly happen to me probably if I was raised Mormon. Because during the Mormon evangelical period, 
the Mormon missionaries are nearly sent almost anywhere, whether in the United States or outside of the United States, for an extended period of two years of time, while women serve missions for 18 months, which obviously is not as long as two years, but it's still a very decently long period for someone below the age of 21 to actually go out to. So Mormon missionaries are also, and this is a very, very insane. It's very, very insane. This is another way to really see how it is a cult formation. There, Before the period of 2000, 14, I think it was, 2014 or 15, these Mormon missionaries were actually not allowed to contact their families besides two calls per year. And of course, this is sort of similar to Scientology where people are just completely cut off and disassociated from society. And yet in this scenario, Mormons are in a, they are in a society, they're just in the middle of a different society than their own. Now beforehand, Mormons were not supposed to call back home except two times over the two-year period, but with the changing of this main Mormon uh, American president in 2019, uh, in, in the new president of 2019, he changed and allowed missionaries to call home weekly versus the intense limitation. And of course, this was structured to try and get more people on the missions field, which is honestly a smart way to combat people just simply wanting to go home and wanting nothing to do with Mormonism ever again. This change happened according to NBC News in 2019, and in 2014-2015 all those years, they were basically debating it back and forth until it finally changed, most likely due to the fact that the age was actually lowered from 21 to 18 back further in 2012. And, of course, the age-lowering was an attempt to get more people out in the field, obviously, but straightforwardly, 18-year-olds are most likely either thinking about their careers or they're thinking about possibly going to college. So the first thing that an 18-year-old that I typically you know, would come into contact with and talk to, they'd, they'd probably not answer, oh, I want to go to Indonesia for two years and not talk to my family. Typically, that's not what most 18-year-olds say. And, of course, obviously the Mormon community knows that. If, you're a, if you are a coffee drinker, like I, of course, have stated I am all the time, I drink coffee probably two to three times a day, and so does 80% of the United States, then you need Black Rifle Coffee. They're not only conservative, but they are an incredible coffee company that makes only the best coffee around, and they also support the Second Amendment, started by a man who is a military specialist who is also a veteran of the U.S. military. He designed this whole coffee company, and you can support him and the Second Amendment by buying a black raffle coffee with the AK-47 Dark Roast, as well as all of the other black raffle coffee flavors. Go online to their website and make sure you support the Second Amendment. Now when it comes to the instance of approaching houses for conversion, there is a very, very straightforward conversion methodology that they use. They actually have a script 
and it is required that they completely memorize the whole entirety of it. Now, very, very, very straightforwardly here, they actually try to mention as little of the um, Mormon and Christian connections as possible. Basically, as we stated before at the beginning of this episode, they want to stress Christianity versus stressing Mormonism because the more strange theology they discuss concerning Mormonism, the more and more and more so someone who isn't affiliated with any religion will just simply laugh in their face and of course close the door. This is the same thing that Jehovah's Witnesses do as they basically just want to stress Jesus versus the actual theology that they believe in. LDS comes up to people's homes as they normally do and did before so, however the RLDS is mildly differentiated. Of course, similar to the churches and actual Christianity when it comes to evangelism, one of the main attributes that Mormons will do within the RLDS church is an attempt to change a certain magnitude of LDS theology when it comes to Joseph Smith. Mormons of the RLDS will also assume historically, uh, or, or Mormons in the LDS church will say that RLDS was started by Emma, who was Joseph Smith's wife. However, this is actually false. So they actually will say that. However, RLDS was started by the other main followers after Joseph Smith, long after Joseph Smith died. And of course, this is basically another historical disagreement within Mormon churches and a way to try and get people to follow one denomination or the other, which sadly is what a lot of Christian churches do nowadays as well. So let's jump in really quickly to the other church denominations when it comes specifically to Mormonism. So leading up to the period of June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith attempted to run for president of the United States, but unfortunately for him, did not have the ability to win considering the differentiated faith basis at the time and mostly due to the practice and ideology of polygamy which he obviously did which in turn caused so many today to not enjoy being a part of the mormon following and also causes most mormons to claim to turn from the practice since it was denounced in 1845 and basically that is one of the most pivotal points in mormon of theology and Mormon history. It was interpreted by the, by the majority of everyone who isn't Mormon and completely ignored by people who are Mormon, they basically don't even want to answer this question, that Smith called on a militia in Illinois to completely overthrow the government. And of course, following this, he was charged with treason and he was jailed and later murdered by gunshot by a raging mob that came against him of course, this is the second pivotal movement in what would lead into the separation of the future Mormon denominations, quote-unquote. So, after Smith's death, Anna is left with the children and, of course, one more child on the way, as well as the adopted children that are under the ages of 13 at the time of their father's death, or in between the ages of 13 and uh, 11, which is extremely sad. And of course, after Joseph Smith's death, uh, there was a lot of church debt that was left behind, and Brigham Young was one of the highest ranking in the church at that time. 
That is when Joseph Smith III grew up as they were in a period of extreme hardcore debts. This was basically the Great Depression period when it comes to the Mormon history. Joseph Smith III ended up taking up three wives that were from separate marriages, and commonly this is where a large amount of people end up feeling as though they simply want to try out polygamy considering the hardships of life. That you go through a difficult trial of life and all of a sudden you just get this extreme sexual feeling where you want to go out and try nightlife, you know, and our day and age today. But back in that day, there was a lot of strife economically, and thus the idea of polygamy always tended to arise. Joseph Smith III's wives all died, first due to tuberculosis, the second died in a horrific accident that sometimes is still debated exactly what happened, and the third died of poor health. The next child in line would slowly become uh, the future leaders in the church alongside of Young in order to formulate the church following the death of Smith. However, RLDS formed in a different way than the LDS denomination, and this is the restructured Latter-day Saints. One of the many differences is the question of prophetship and leadership of the church and who should take the reins of responsibility. Another disagreement is involved in dealing with self-defense, where RLDS members are not allowed to be involved unless it is defend to defend one's own family, sort of borderline to the theology of divine command theory in actual Christianity. Yet at the same time, they're frequently more connected to the idea of only having peace, so it is somewhat murky on the subject of war and self-defense practices. Now, the RLDS also implies a theology practice of truth by human nature and experience, similar to what is actually opposed uh, to the viewpoints of, say, Thomas Aquinas, who mentions that human reason actually can establish the existence of God and the immortality of the soul, which generally a far heavy amount of theologians will also exclaim the same type of conclusion. One of the main disagreements in the overall concept of the nation of Zion in RLDS Mormonism, where contrary to the thought of LDS to consider Jerusalem symbolically destroyed because of sinful desire, is actually a symbol of God's holy kingdom instead of a place of reference to be in community with God. Or, or it's a place of reference to be in community with God versus a sinful nation communicated by the LDS church denomination. As another difference when it comes to RLDS versus LDS, all are called, which is another factor, also differing from an actual uh, form of Christianity in most theological respects, where some people say, predestination-wise, that some people will never be called, while, of course, others view the form of free will to be better than predestination, where people can free will choose and decide whether or not to follow God. LDS is more on the predestination, or yes, more on the predestination side, while RLDS is more on the free will side. The RLDS also has a priesthood similar to that of the LDS Church. However, the RLDS actually allows men and women into the priesthood, unlike LDS and Catholics in actual Christianity, and, and grants them the ability to serve, although they're not actually paid. In this way, of course, it could be potentially to steer people away from 
Mormon RLDS uh, or Mormon LDS church denominations and other forms of mainstream Mormonism that do not include women within the priesthood. It basically gives more women the opportunity to serve, which at times is more interpreted as respectable when it comes to practicers of the Mormon faith. Now, both the RLDS and the LDS require a heavy amount of 10% of one's own finances and tithing when it comes to money for Mormon followers. However, in the RLDS denomination, there's a slight increase from 10% to 12% considering the stewardship theology that is essentially taken from the United Church of Christ Protestant denomination and adapted to the new Mormon breakoff. The sacraments in this way also are mostly almost the same, except they apply more hidden theology attached to the whole uh, Supper of the Lamb concept. And they normally don't actually tell this to people if they ever come into the church and, you know, go into the building with, say, friends or something like that. They will not exactly get the full entire message of the theological basis. They'll basically be easily fooled because it'll look exactly like the normal supper of the Lamb when it comes to uh, RDLS. Uh, sacraments. And of course the tithing will look the same too as tithing is essentially just giving money to the church. All that will look the same. So they'll also hide a lot of their theology and practices that look exactly like Christian practices. So lastly here, let's get into the FLDS church history. When it comes to the practice of polygamy, and this is another way to note that it's simply a cult formation by the LDS, the church would actually mention that they are a proper church in Mormonism because they say they don't practice polygamy, yet that statement is not actually the case. This is how you know it's a cult because if you go to any FLDS uh, cult formations, mostly in Arizona, they'll actually say that they 100% don't practice polygamy and it is, will actually be done in secret. The difference is whether or not the other breakoffs since the LDS, FLDS, and RDS split practice polygamy or not. And generally, it is a lot higher for probability that they do considering all the crimes that have happened since the early 90s, 80s, and early 2000s since all this Mormonism split related history occurred. Now this is also as mentioned before when it comes to the faith of Mormonism compared to Christianity to actually be more unrealistic when it comes to a faith basis and all their theology comes out in the open considering the FLDS actually holds to the belief and their leader that Warren Jeffs is the main worshipable prophet similar to when uh, people who practice Islam say that Muhammad is a prophet of Allah. They basically say that Warren Jeffs is someone to be praised alongside of God. And of course, if you look into Warren Jeffs' crime history and crimes against humanity, it's actually very extensive, highly sexually explicit, and very, very disturbing. In 2002, Warren Jeffs became the leader, and it was applied historically over this period that he continued to be the president 
and over this extensive period he had as many as 70 wives and possibly more than that. The instance of him being in prison stand, stems from his horrific sexual assault of a 12-year-old female, which somehow, in a demonically confused methodology, he stated to be one of his 70 future wives in church leadership, which is just horrifically disgusting. But of course, due to the fact that it's a cult, somehow his followers overlook that. And there's another means in which the FLDS is far more unrealistic when it comes to uh, the whole faith-based Sistine theology. Because, as reported by other news channels, it, it's actually stated and written down in the FLDS that they are meant to pray for Jeffs and pray constantly concerning him. Which, praying for someone isn't a bad characteristic. Obviously, there's so many people in prison today that should be prayed for and pray that they come to the actual Jesus and the actual Messiah. But praying to a known pedophile as if he is legitimately God is an extremely backwards ideology and extremely dark and extremely horrible. It's stated even more so uh, from an ABC News article that the only reason that he's not out of jail is because people are not praying for his release hard enough. But obviously the reason why he's not out of jail is, well, because he sexually assaulted an individual who was underage, which is just, again, a terrible thing to do. And that's obviously what should legitimately uproot FLDS from history. It should be completely uprooted, completely in every single way, shape, and form. But due to the fact that FLDS is controlled demonically, it unfortunately most likely won't. Now leading up to this point before Jeffs took office as the most famous Mormon creep known to mankind, there were others in the ranks that were not in favor of the polygamous practice, and they actually denounced it. But of course, besides that fact, there's a higher amount of history where everyone actually did polygamy. So, going back on the history before Jeffs, Leroy S. Johnson from the documentation of MRM.org, which is a historic, uh, historical website on Mormonism, uh, it also aired a three-part series on the splits of the religion, records he was baptized into the Mormon LDS Church at the age of eight years old. Directly following the manifesto of the ban of polygamous practice that became instated after uh, Wilford Woodruff, who was the fourth president of the LDS Church organization, completely employed that uh, or implored that so that people wouldn't be practicing polygamy. In his adulthood, Johnson decided to move to Short Creek in Arizona, which became a hive for the continued practice of polygamy, despite the ban by the LDS and main individuals who went beforehand by the names of John W. Woolley, Joseph White Mercer, John White Barlow, and of course including Johnson and his wife, and they were all permanently banned from the assembly of the LDS because of their venture into the opposing group and due to his affiliation. He eventually became the ordained apostle of the rivalry priesthood called the Council of the Priesthood, and the FLDS 
uh, church denomination in Arizona, which of course that tends to happen. We've seen it uh, happen recently in the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist uh, Church denomination or Global United Church Methodist denomination. But of course, it is obviously not over the reason of polygamy. It's just over the theological reason of homosexuality. So the reason, uh, so, so the history continues as Barlow passes away in 1949. And Johnson takes the leadership position following the leadership of Barlow. And by this time, they completely are disaffiliated from the LDS entirely up to the point where everyone knew what was going on in Arizona. By this time, there's also a famous raid of Short Creek called the Raid of Short Creek, which happens to take place where the FBI, and quite honestly should have done this straightforwardly a lot sooner than they did, but they sent a large amount of federal governmental agents with warrants on the ranch and kicked down every door of the ranch and took away all the children from the polygamous parents, which of course is an extremely unhealthy environment to grow up in. There were reports at that time, according to Salt Lake Tribune, that children were told to stay in their rooms and they were actually told to pray for the, that the officers would leave, which is a completely parental manipulation of safety. And again, it can be argued that the same demon involved in the creation of Mormonism itself was in fact the same demon or demons in Arizona that completely created the whole of the Mormon religion. Of course, Mormons won't agree with me when I say that, but it is something religiously to put forward. Later on, the group split once again, and the splitting group following the death of Carl Holmes and Richard Jessup, which were two other higher-ups in the FLDS denomination, Johnson desired not to replace them following their passing with the want to extend leadership and the interpretation of one main doctrine, which is the key that most Mormons stating that there's never one on earth at the time of whom this power and keys to this priesthood are conferred, meaning that they interpreted multiple individuals leading the assembly was wrong versus simply one president who is currently in control with limited profits. So essentially, he completely threw, in a sense, the rule of multiple out the window so that he could be the main ruler of the FLDS church denomination. And this was formed as was known as the Central Park Group. That is the opposing group, the opposing split break off of the LDS denomination, which of course sort of ends up sounding like a group of governmental park rangers in a local park space, but actually functions as a break off from FLDS. And of course the FLDS upheld the opposing viewpoint and they instated that there should be multiple people in following versus just one. Now continuing, Johnson banished those who joined the Sentinental Park group and ended up passing away later on in 1986 and was continued by Roland Jeffs who was rather disturbingly referred to as the uncle as Uncle Ruin because his parents practiced multiple partners, and that's just extremely disturbing. Jeff, as according to MRN.org, again lived his first 10 years as Ruin Jennings. Beforehand, he lived with the LDS Church, but later was introduced to Joseph W. Mercer and John R. Barlow of the FLDS before taking a polygamous wife in 1940, which caused strife, obviously, in his first marriage to Zola Brown, who 
just happened to be the daughter of the church apostle of the LDS, Hugh B. Brown at the time, and also the great-granddaughter of Brigham Young, if you can believe that, and she ended up divorcing him, which is not surprising by any means. However, today in politics, it can be highly argued, and I actually forgot to include this article in the episode, but it can be highly argued that as people are wanting to do polygamy and multiple uh, marriages, it can be argued that there's going to be a higher amount of people going into the FLDS practice just for the reason of polygamy. So this whole entire time, he practiced polygamy and as a result ended up having upwards of 75 wives. And as disturbing as it is true, a large amount, unfortunately, were the age of 14 when this took place. All of these women ended up giving birth to some 65 children, one of whom was Warren Jeffs. And at this time, you've got to wonder why the FBI did not send a second task force to raid their assembly. Of course, that unfortunately, uh, or why the FBI didn't just send an assembly before the whole instance on the ranch. However, recently in 2022, there was actually a second raid by the FBI where they got warrants again issued, and this time, as of 2022, a man by the name of Samuel Bateman, of course not to be confused with Jason Bateman from Ozark, obviously, but Samuel Bateman was arrested on charges of both child endangerment and intense you know, abuse. And of course, this was around the same grounds of the original property. It's extremely disturbing and extremely terrible. So quoting from this article, Federal agents with a search warrant swarmed a home in Arizona with known links to a sect of the polygamous fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, reported 46-year-old Samuel Rapili Bateman. The news of the raid from that time arrives just two weeks after Mr. Bateman, who leads a break-off sect of the FLDS religion in Colorado City, was arrested by authorities after he had been accused of transporting young girls in a locked cargo trailer towards Phoenix, which that actually ended up occurring. And Bateman actually did in fact, when he was pulled over, he had two young girls in a locked trailer with no light, food, or water, and those two girls and three additional girls between the ages of 11 and 15. He ended up, obviously of course, getting arrested without bail in that type of instance and scenario. And this is just another look at the horrific practices of the LDS Church and essentially what most people, most current historians and most people in the media would have assumed is they were probably being shipped to arranged marriages or some form of sick type of thing going on. This is obviously a means of why the FLDS should just simply be completely shut down by the FBI and of course, there should be a high call for that to take place. Now, before we finish this episode, in the period of 2016, as well as uh, recent years, there was one done in 2012. There is a Phoenix, Arizona temple alongside of other tapes that were posted to YouTube and other forms of the web where an individual whose name will be protected and actually is not known by me recorded a ritual that is apparently not shown to anybody else except those who are invited into the Mormon temple. 
pictured are several higher up Mormons dressed in white, gold, and green robes that look somewhat similar to that of bishops in the Catholic Church. And as they are surrounded by a circle of their colleagues in a voiceover, there's an intercom that states, quote, the sisters are to unveil their faces and the brothers and the sisters must return to their seats. So in a sense, also to set the stage, there is a very disturbing scenario where there is what looks like a coffin. And you kind of wonder exactly what the coffin means. And this is one of those rituals that, again, is basically them remembering their past lives as a Casper ghost, in a sense. And it's also a ritual that's meant to allow them to go into, the very least, the first heaven. So there's a veil of drapes behind the leader coronating the ritual who's all dressed in white, obviously meaning to represent some sort of angel or some sort of heavenly figure. And essentially there's someone's arms on the other edge that are basically extended out so you can only see the hands and arms covered in white and it's just existentially creepy. It kind of just looks like a horror movie in and of itself or possibly a Criminal Minds cult episode. But the veil drapes behind the leader open up and there's discussion about the priesthood garments and what they mean to imply. And they're meant to be the priesthood of the Mormon faith. And they have added measures that have argumentably Masonic ritual symbolism, such as a compass, which the Masons also use, as we mentioned before, with Joseph Smith's potential Masonic history connections. And all of the other, quote, marks on the robe that are meant to mean servants of Christ and other sort of ritualisms. Next, the priesthood individuals are supposed to walk up to the veil. And this, of course, is all explained within the video. It's meant to represent a believer in Mormonism being asked what he stands for, standing for all other desires, which are meant to be completely godly, and it's basically supposed to be masked in light of a mixture of Catholicism and Christianity, but it's actually some sort of meant to be mixture of Christian, Masonic, and Mormonism. And it goes by an ask and answer methodology, which is actually in real Masonic rituals. Basically, the arms extend out and they're asked a question. And they're asked, do you know what this handshake is? Do you know what such and such form of symbolism means? And they're meant to give an answer that they already know. And they are then instructed to give multiple handshakes to go with the multiple answers. And again, this is also a Masonic type of copy. And this was actually figured out when someone also infiltrated the Masonic temple. Of course, that was a whole type of ordeal. And the person that did that actually ended up being threatened both violently and with legal action. And of course, it's meant to plagiarize a form of secret handshake that gets someone into heaven, and it's meant to be the word of God, and it's meant to be the thoughts of God, but it's actually opposing to true, real Christianity. After all these actions, actually before these actions take place, too, there are three taps on a drum, which three is basically the symbolic representation of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in, in this instance, it's basically a blaspheme, but they don't say that. 
And following all these other actions, there's three more taps of the drum. Again, a blaspheme of actual Christianity. And the person who was asked the questions is meant to give the unknown person behind the veil their hand, and they're meant to walk through the veil. And this is meant to basically state that they're both connected to the Mormon priesthood, and they're also welcomed into the first heaven and potentially other heavens. And this is also a formation where they are meant to remember their life beforehand as an immortal ghost. So in the end, the priesthood member, of course, is meant to take the hand and walk through the veil. And then there's another voiceover that basically explains everything that has happened once again. And the next person in the priesthood is meant to do the same following thing. And this is one of the only priesthood practices that really anyone knows of because it's extremely difficult to get into a Mormon temple as we've already explained before. Now the other uh, YouTube videos out there, the other videos out there on other multiple platforms actually have just equally disturbing rights to them as there's another room in the Mormon temple where people walk into and people are essentially singing, they're essentially singing to God and they're begging forgot to hear them and essentially what can be mentioned here somewhat of a Molech or a Baal practice. Essentially what happens is they have a bunch of calves in the middle of the room and they are meant to call on a deity to answer them and essentially they remove the self-harm aspect which is what the Moabites and Canaanites would do. They would stab themselves through the arms with knives and in a sense they then I guess particularly worship these calf statues. Now although there are many Christ unbranded cults out there that attempt to match the truth of Christian doctrine the continuous Mormon brand will also remain if you notice it. The minute or the second that the preacher or self-proclaimed teacher mentions Joseph Smith, golden plates, multiple heavens, or the need for multiple marriages all at once, or the thought of temple worship, these are obvious signs, and thus will reveal the obvious reality of Mormonism in complete disassociation from Christianity. The other obvious sign is the outfit that resembles a retail or furniture employee with the brand and name under the name of the individual. The final sign, and the least likely to be discovered sign, however, might simply be the smile on the individual's face as he or she tells the re-alliterated gospel that, in fact, is Mormonism and not Christianity, which is another testament of Jesus Christ that Jesus never told. And that will do it for us today. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.